We grow increasingly attached to this idea that our identity is inextricably bound up in this concept. Mm. And that concept could be a business that we're starting. It could be, you know, a political way of being, a political belief. And it's a way I think that gives our lives meaning in some ways. Like I think oftentimes we are looking for mm. how to create meaning in our lives by by combining it with some other thing. All right, welcome back everyone to Lost and Searching, previously known as the Mindful Leader Podcast. Here in season two, we're focusing on the theme of stress and breakdowns. And today's guest is a man named Eric, who helps us take a new perspective on that. Eric describes himself as someone who has summited the highest peaks of both the business world and the physical world because he is an entrepreneur who has sold multiple companies for hundreds of millions but also successfully climbed Mount Everest a few years ago and as a result of all of the learning he got from both of those worlds and particularly the mental health struggles he had on the way he's actually written a book kind of culminating all this information around resilience around that area that very much helps us explore what our mental health might look like and as a result today we talk about some heavy concepts things like depression self-sabotage and even suicide so this is a little bit of a trigger warning for any of that just in case but today's episode is a really jam-packed one before we get started, I wanted to let you know that if you enjoy the show, you can really help me out by filling out a survey that I'm running. It helps me out immensely, and you will be in for a chance to win a giveaway. More about that down in the description. But without further ado, we have a lot to cover, so let's get into it. Self-sabotage is our conscious and our subconscious resisting, you know, the conflict between the conscious and the subconscious, and it's that resistance that we are trying to understand and overcome. Help people become aware of how their minds work. What are their default settings? Do they tend to be overly optimistic or overly pessimistic? All of us have the same regrets when we die. All of us have pretty much the same regrets. Why didn't I live truer to my own purpose? Why was I swayed by other people's ideas of what I should do? Many leaders feel that they have to be perceived as bold and strong and courageous. And there's almost this thought that a lot of people have in which they feel they can't show others that they're weak. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings. All right, Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you, man? Seven, I'm fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. I am really excited to to be part of this conversation with you and, and really appreciate the opportunity. Oh, I really appreciate having you here. I think your uh, story was a really, really kind of exciting one for me to hear because it, I related to it a lot, right? And I, I first heard you kind of speaking at an event a few weeks ago and got in touch. And so here we are. You've actually got a book coming out tomorrow, which is well, the time of recording. It's tomorrow, which is crazy. It dates this episode a little bit. That's an accident. <laughs> Ignore that. But to me, that's insane that you're giving us your time just before uh, uh, your book comes out. And that book is so, so relevant to so many of the things and the aims that we, we look to cover uh, on this show. So what I'd really love to do is start us off. We'll talk about uh, uh, your book quite a bit throughout. I'm, I'm, I'm 
willing to bet, and I've already got a couple of questions, but I'd love to start out by understanding a little bit more about you. What's your kind of story, right? What experiences have you had that you think have shaped who you are today and the work that you do? And tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what that work is as well, just for, for anyone uh, interested. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, you know, the reason that I'm prioritizing this conversation at this point in time is I love the message that you're sharing with your audience and, and with your listeners and with the members of your community around the importance of being a mindful leader. It's something that wasn't naturally part of my DNA for a long time, and it wasn't really part mm. of things I was exposed to or role models that I would even say that I had for most of, of the formulative years of my life. And it's something that I came to a little bit later in my existence and, and came to understand the importance of. And so the opportunity to help, um, to, to hopefully help give a little bit of that perspective to people potentially earlier in their leadership journey or wherever they might be in their leadership journey is something that's so important to me. And, and that's, um, that, that's why this is just Aww. such an important conversation to have. Oh, it makes me really happy. Cool. I'm really happy to hear that. I'm glad. I think to me, that's a really positive sign. And it speaks to what I want to talk about today, because that's pretty much yeah. why I started it, right? I, as as most of these things go, uh, you start it because you experience something, right? So I went through this stage of being like, God, what what the hell am I doing? Like, uh, this is a having a horrible time of this. And it was multiplied by and exacerbated by what my preconceptions and my inner voices yep. were growing up and, and things like that. But nonetheless, when I got into it, it didn't make it it just made it so hard to feel like I knew what I was doing to be aware of myself and then to be understanding of the impact that was having on my work and my goals, et cetera. So yeah, man, that's exactly what, what I'm looking to explore today. Yeah. So, so getting back to your question, you know, I grew up mm. as a, as a kid, I grew up in North Carolina, which is in the Southeast of the United States. And one of the, one of the working titles I had for the book uh, it, it, at some point in time was, I think I wanted to call it something like mindfulness for people in red states. And, okay. and, and part of the idea behind that, so, so for any of your listeners that are international, the red state, blue state divide in, in the United States, um, you know, blue states are is, is sort of what we would call liberals. It's, it's kind of left of center. It tends to be a little bit more um, expansive in thinking, whereas red state tends to be a little bit more conservative. And the, the reason I'm sharing this is it, it, I think, provides some context for how I come to this conversation. I grew up in a fairly conservative area of the country, um, you know, very much influenced by, by the kind of idea of the Protestant work ethic, the work hard and live right and God will bless mm -hmm. you, some of those sorts of ideas. And, um, you know, I was also an entrepreneur and a technologist okay. from a very early age. I learned to program computers when oh, I was wow. in second grade. I was kind of the weird uh, technology nerd <laughs> that many of you probably knew growing up. Um, I was I was the kid sitting in the back, uh, literally reading computer programming books in school and, and you know, playing Dungeons wow. and Dragons in my nice. free time. And I so love that. that was just sort of the person that I was. Yeah. And, and I was always fascinated with starting businesses. I, I kind of came of age and graduated uh, high school um, in 2000. So I, I went through high school during the uh, dot-com boom, which was this yeah. crazy episode of kind of manic euphoria 
uh, around technology companies. And I was at the time programming computers and starting businesses. I applied for my first patent, I think, when I was a sophomore in high school. Wow. Yeah. And and so um, th- there were there were sort of a few key influences that that um, I, I guess formulated my way of being when I was very young. And it was all mm. about technology. It was all about entrepreneurship. It was all about go, 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 drive, 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 yeah. do more, work harder, achieve more, the, the sort of path to whatever it is you might want want in life comes through the process of ever-growing achievement was was mm. this kind of, um, I, I don't know, the, the, this kind of mentality that got coded into my DNA yeah. before I yeah. even realized yeah. Um and and I never really thought about it. I never really consciously adopted it. Um as as I got a little further in my career, I, I was fond of saying, you know, I, I can't control how talented I am, but I can make sure that I always outwork everybody else. And Right. This it's the extreme of this like hustle mindset kind of exactly mentality it. that we're used to now, right? Yeah. With no balance. I mm. I, I wouldn't take time off of work. Um, I, I, I took almost no time off. I, uh, I, it really was just go, go, go again. There was no balance to it. There was no, yes, there are periods of your life when you need to work really hard, but there are also periods to rest and recover and and some of those Mm. kinds of things. And so Mm. all of that hit the wall in what became kind of the seminal part of my business journey, um, or, or at least a formulative, um, chapter in my business journey which right. was the founding, building, and eventually selling of a company called Simple Relevance. And mm. um, I, I founded it in 2010 uh, in Chicago, grew it, accepted a whole bunch of venture capital, um, was was literally on the cover of some of the local business magazines and was mm-hmm. a cover boy and an example for the growing technology entrepreneurship community here in Chicago. And right. then what happened to me is is what happens to, you know, statistics say more than 75% of entrepreneurs, okay. which was that I had to look failure in the eye. Mm. And I had to recognize that this company may not succeed financially beyond my wildest dreams the way I had always implicitly expected <sighs> that it would. Yeah. And a combination of some leadership challenges, some of the financial challenges, the fact that I had grown to basically equate myself with my business. Yeah. All of this led me to some really dark places mentally and emotionally as I was trying to grow this company. And these weren't things that I was really prepared for. Right. They, I had never considered myself someone who, who struggled with really anything mentally, emotionally, and I found myself in, in some very dark places. It, there were times in my life where I was really questioning whether it made sense for me to continue, whether it made sense um, for me to keep going on this journey. And it, it felt like mm. as I looked at the idea of failure and as I contemplated the idea of failure, it was so inconceivable to me, the, the sort of forever overachiever, this idea that I might fail that it was it was damn near impossible for me to figure right, out how yeah. do I even come to terms with that. And there were points there were points where it seemed easier to quit the game entirely and and to um mm. to find some way, you know, candidly to end my life. 
rather than thinking about ending the company and accepting the failure. Now, now, thankfully, you know, obviously, I didn't end up taking that path. I never attempted uh, suicide or any mm. of those kinds of things. But, but it left a pretty deep mark on me. And even as we sold the company, and I was able to okay. sell it, and it, it was what we in the you know entrepreneurial community call uh, 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 um, you know it's an aqua hire, so a combination of an acquisition, but really a way to get jobs and, and to keep the company going. Okay. So it wasn't a terribly successful exit. There was no massive uh, you know celebration at the end of that story. And then after that, I spent a whole bunch of time mm. writing. I, I started to go to therapy. I started to read, um, really trying to investigate what it was that happened to me and and why why had I kind of yeah. had some of these challenges that I had. And and so I used a lot of that time, that introspection, that space, that that opportunity for self-learning to try to figure out how do I make myself more resilient when the times get tough? How do I make myself more resilient to hardship, to stress, to anxiety, to depression, to a lot of these other things that, that you know, necessarily exist? And that if I, if I want to live a life where I, I plan to do a lot of exciting things, like I know that some of those stressors are going to exist in, in my mind. And so how do I become more resilient to that? And so I spent a ton of time studying that and, and thinking about that and learning about that. Um, and then I, I decided to apply many okay. of those ideas to another aspect that requires resilience, which was going and climbing, climbing mm -hmm. Mount Everest. And so I was able to climb Mount Everest in 2018, but okay. by applying yeah. a whole lot of those lessons and, and, you know, we can talk about that in more detail if you want. Um, but ultimately all of that came together. And, and then what I finally decided was kind of going back to your point seven, there's an awful lot of bad influences. There's an awful lot of bad advice. There's an awful lot of, of bad counsel mm. that we give to high achievers. And so, so what I finally yeah. then decided to do was to write the book that I had been looking for when I was going through the entrepreneurial journey and to try to give the advice back to a younger version of myself mm. of, here are those things that it would have been great if you'd known when you were going through mm. some of those challenges. And, and so that's, that, that's kind of Eric's story in a nutshell here. Yeah. Oh my God. That is so perfect. Yeah. That is so perfect because that is exactly what we want to get out of this. And, and so much of that felt, felt really relatable. That really hit me. I think it's, it's interesting. You mentioned attachment there because Something that I find endlessly fascinating is how attached we get to certain mm -hmm. elements of what's going on or about ourselves, right? Yep. And so we form this identity around what those things are. I think it's really interesting how, because we, some of the examples um, you even used, you've used kind of uh, red state, blue state, so like political leanings. Yep. That's a that's a really common example where, uh, especially nowadays. Uh, from what I've read, it's very different to how it was 40, 50 years ago. But nowadays, we very much identify with our political leanings, right? As an example. Yep. Yep. So if your best friend turns out, actually, they vote for the other party, <laughs> then suddenly that feels like an attack on your character. Becomes an right? existential crisis. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think, and that's, that's a, I think, just an example that is very relatable, which is why I yep. use it. But yep. 
we apply that to leadership. We apply that to to and and for the this example, it's entrepreneurship. Similar to myself, your your background in leadership is with entrepreneurship. We apply that to something like having a business, your own project, your own this own little baby that you want to succeed. If they if it doesn't succeed, it feels like this thing you've given life to hasn't succeeded and therefore that you haven't succeeded. And then because you've placed, we, we place all our worth on that in that moment where we've been very attached to it. Suddenly when something goes wrong, it's as if we are wrong. And if that becomes our whole identity, you know, what is, what is the other option there? And when you, when you talk about um, suicide, that, that really hits home for me because that attachment I think is something that we 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 create often and my personal experience with suicide and suicidal thoughts tends to be we only consider that when we don't when there's so much pain that we don't know what to do with it and don't feel like there is another option and it's 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 scary to me how much that attachment creates that kind of context that kind of situation where that has the potential has so much potential to be the case unfortunately right so we've set ourselves up for this kind of failure and it's it's scary in a way but it's it's also heartbreaking right yeah i could not agree more i, I think it goes beyond scary i, I would use mm-hmm. words like terrifying and yeah. existential crisis because mm. it really does feel that way we we train ourselves you know particularly with entrepreneurship, I hadn't considered it as much in the political context, but I think you make a really, really compelling point there as well. Right. We, we train ourselves to think that we are, we are essentially this other thing. We, to your word attachment, we grow increasingly attached to this idea that our identity is inextricably bound up mm. in this concept. And that concept could be a business that we're starting. It could be, you know, a political way of being, a political belief. And it's a way I think that gives our lives meaning in some ways. Like I think oftentimes mm. we are looking for how to create meaning in our lives by by combining it with some other thing. Okay. And and so for me at, at a point in time, it was being the founder and CEO of Simple Relevance. Mm. I almost didn't know how to introduce myself as Eric Severinghouse okay. without saying founder and CEO of Simple Relevance. Yeah. And so when it felt like that was going to go away and it felt like it was going to fail, it it was very difficult for me. It took a lot of time for me to learn how to dissociate myself from the business and to say, you know what, Eric Severinghouse is actually a collection of a whole bunch of things. Mm-hmm. He's he's a friend, he's a son, he's a brother, yeah. he's you know a, a, an employee outside. He's an innovator outside of be of this one company. He's you know now an investor, now a writer, but but our our human body, you know, our, our spirit is made up of much more than whatever thing we might decide to attach ourselves to. And it's such an easy thing to forget. I'll, I'll give one exercise that's mm-hmm. been really important for me, um, if that's all right, yeah, Seven, that, that I think, cool. So one of the things that I started to do an awful lot was to rate my, I would journal. So I found journaling to be incredibly powerful. Okay. And I would, I would write down a number and I would write down on any given day, how did I feel about myself? 
how did I feel about my business and how did I feel about my family? Mm. And what I found was it took me a lot. So, so this is a really powerful exercise because it allows you to dissociate and disaggregate different parts of your life. And so you can use this journaling for any one of a number of different things, right? Um, but for me, it took me a long time before how I felt about myself could be ranked higher than how I was feeling about my business on any given day. Mm. So if my business felt like it was like a six, it took me a long time to train myself to say, you know what? It's perfectly fine to say that I'm a, I'm feeling like a nine. Like I'm feeling good about myself as a human being, mm. even though I'm having a bad day at the office. Like that is okay. a perfectly rational thing to have happen, but it took me a long time to believe that. Mm. I absolutely love that exercise, but it's what I think I love so much about that is the contrast. I think that's the word I'm looking for is contrast. You sometimes the simple act of writing things down in a certain way shows us this is what this is. And this is what something that is completely different is in a completely different sense. It removes us from whatever we've attached ourselves to. That, that's exactly right. When you look at it on the page uh, and when you get it out of your system and onto a piece of paper, oftentimes it it doesn't seem nearly as scary or nearly mm. as terrifying or nearly as existential. Mm. It allows for us to provide, I think, more context to those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about how those things relate to your book, right? And And your journey to Everest. In fact, let's start with that. Why did you decide to climb Mount Everest despite all of these other things that you were doing and all these other things going on? Yeah, so I had gone to Mount Everest with three friends. We had hiked up to base camp about 10 mm -hmm. years before I finally climbed the mountain. And it, it had been part of this broader trip I was supposed to do. And we ended up, I ended up cutting most of the trip short. But the one part of it that right. I still did was we, we hiked up to base camp and you know, it's, it's Mount Everest is obviously on the border of China and Nepal. We went up on the, mm -hmm. on the uh, Nepal side and okay. you do it, it, even just trekking to base camp is a pretty legitimate journey in and of itself. It's at about 18,000 feet um, high. And it's, um, it's in this area of Nepal called the Khumbu Valley. And it's just this absolutely beautiful, stunning area of the world. The scenery is absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, I've I've lived in Nepal for a little while, I didn't and know it's that. a beautiful place. Yeah, oh. yeah, I lived in um, I lived in it's a, a story for another day, okay. but it's um, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful area, great for reflection and exploring, and the people, it's it's amazing. Oh, so 100%. yeah, I can imagine how interesting it was. Yeah, and seven, you'll you'll probably resonate with this. What as beautiful as the scenery was. What really struck me and what I remember the most about the time there, this was the first time I had ever lived in a culture, you know, a predominantly Buddhist kind of Eastern culture. And what I mm. found over there was people full of kindness, happiness, generosity of spirit, and just an amazing, an amazing spirit about them. I don't know mm -hmm. any other way to put it. And I absolutely fell in love with that. And I thought it was such a contrast to so much of, mm. of what I'd seen in the United States. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. Now, when we got to base camp, 
I, I knew I wanted to come back and I knew I wanted to experience more time in Nepal. Yeah. And because I'm a goal driven and goal oriented person, I'm standing there at base camp and I said, all right, I really want to come climb this. Okay. I want to come have this adventure. And, um, and so I committed to doing it and it took me 10 years later. And, and one of the things that frustrated me the most about my entrepreneurial journey is it felt like it sucked. I, I didn't have any okay. balance for everything else in my life. And so whether it was family, whether it was mountain climbing, whether it was spending time outdoors, I, I felt like a lot of the other stuff went by the wayside as I prioritized only business. There was very little balance. And so after I sold Simple Relevance, I kind of said, I desperately want to go have some of the other balance in my life that I've been mm -hmm. missing as I focused only on business achievement. And so that was things like spending more time outdoors, prioritizing friends and family more. And especially I still had this goal in the back of my mind, which was climbing Mount Everest. Okay. And that was when I got very, very serious about that. So you had a clear goal and you had a reason for it, but it took you a while to go and do it. How did it feel for you when you went and did it, right? Because inevitably, if you've been building up a goal for 10 years, that's that's a lot of anticipation, <laughs> yep. right? What was it like? I guess what I'd love to know really is what was it like actually doing yeah. it? And then what was it like to actually complete yeah. it? So it was 10 years to prepare for it. It was 10 weeks of climbing. It was a 10-week exped expedition. Yeah. And it was 10 minutes on top of the world, you know, at the summit of Mount Everest. Wow. 10, 10, 10. Yeah, it was funny that. how all of that kind of played out. And it really did in the symmetrical way. Mm. And, you know, what I was struck by, I, I don't know. So, so number one, it's, it's absolutely stunning. It's beautiful. It's amazing to be on top of the world. Mm -hmm. it, it was, it, it really was an incredible part of the journey. I'll, I'll tell you maybe a brief story that I think your listeners might enjoy. Mm -hmm. The part of the mountain that actually struck me the most, the part of the journey that actually struck me the most, ironically, was as I was coming down from the summit. So I, I had just okay. achieved this 10-year you know, goal. And, and the thing to know is that um, most mountaineering accidents and most deaths actually mm. come uh, from, from descending rather than ascending. Mm. And so, so while you've made it to the top, one of the mountaineering tropes is that's only halfway on the journey. You still got to get back down. Yeah. And as I was going down, I, I had suffered a herniated disc in my back and, and oh, wow. I had some other challenges and I was moving much slower than I had wanted to move. Now I was still, I was still safe and I was still, I had still accomplished, you know, this 10 year goal. And yet as I was descending, it was becoming increasingly apparent that I wasn't going to make um, my stretch goal for that particular day, which was making it all the way down to advanced base camp. And, and rather than making it all the way down to advanced base camp, I was going to end up spending one more night at camp four, which is a, a perfect, it's a very high camp. It's a perfectly fine camp. It's a perfectly safe camp. There's no reason not to sleep at camp four. Other than it's high, it's less comfortable. It'll take longer to get down to base camp and all this kind of stuff. So it, I kind of okay. had this like vision in my head of I'm going to make it down further. And it became increasingly apparent that I was not going to be able to do that. And mm. so as I'm descending from, from the summit of Mount Everest, I find that I am sort of beating myself up and I'm okay. engaging in negative self-talk as I go down, mm. as, as I rappel down. And I'm thinking to myself, man, Eric, you're not even going to make it to advanced base camp. That was your goal. These other climbers are making it there. How come you're not going to? And, and you know, I'm really beating myself up. 
And I finally had this moment of clarity where I, I finally stopped and I, I finally literally spoke to myself and said, if you're not going to be good enough mm-hmm. for your own expectations on the day that you summited Mount Everest, like when is it ever going to be good enough? When is it yeah. ever going to be enough? When are you ever mm-hmm. going to be happy? When are you ever mm-hmm. going to be able to say, that was a damn good day. Like I did what I was supposed to do, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 so there were a couple things that really struck me on on the journey. Getting back to your question, seven. The first was that being atop the world was amazing, and it was incredible, and it was cool to achieve it. But as I kind of limped into base camp, you know, a couple of days later, and finally made it right. down to the mountain, like I'm still the same person. Like getting to the top of the mountain didn't really change me all that much. The thing that changed me more than anything. And it's, it's a bit of a trope, right? It's the journey more than Mm. the destination. Yeah. But the thing that changed me more than anything, I think was that moment on the descent Mm -hmm. when I finally realized that despite kind of winning this victory that I'd been fighting for, for 10 years, I still wasn't going to stop and let it make me happy. I still wasn't going to be content and peaceful and Mm. satisfied as a result of it. And, And that's the thing that every time I catch myself, kind of beating myself up over the things that I haven't done as well as I should. I try to remind yeah. myself and and I look at a tattoo that I actually got of that moment and say, oh, wow. um, you know, like, like you've, you've got to break the cycle and you've, you've got to mm-hmm. enjoy the victories when they happen. Yeah. Sometimes what I do when I'm talking to friends or colleagues or anyone really who are you've got some kind of negative thought, which, which means that you inevitably replay an issue in your head. And then when the, the, the time is right, I'll go, so what are you going to do about it? And that tends to just create this like pin drop silence because all of this is going towards what do I actually do about it? When you had those negative thoughts, inevitably you must have come to the point where you said, what am I going to do about this? So Eric, I'd love to know what did you do as a result of noticing that? What changed? I'll tell you for me, the biggest part was in the noticing. Mm. The biggest part was in the, the recognizing that the cycle was happening so that I could then be intentional about how to break the cycle. Mm. And and it was less about a specific action and more about I, I I guess for me it's 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 making sure that I have reminders, whether it's okay. the tattoo, whether it's a wristband that I wear, it's it's having the reminders to break that cycle and and to say, like those thoughts are going to happen. Those thoughts are going to enter my mind. I'm, I'm going to have those, you know, look, I've, yeah, I've got natural. this book coming out tomorrow, right? There's going mm-hmm. to be people that don't like the book. There's going to be sales goals that I might not reach. Like there, there's going to be all kinds of things that, that might go wrong. There's going to be all kinds of goals I'm not going to achieve in my life. Right. That's part of the act of daring greatly. But then understanding that, you know, failing doesn't make you a failure right? That not achieving a particular mm. goal, you know, isn't an existential event. And it doesn't mean that you're weak or that you're not good or any of those kinds of mm. things. It's that mentality. It's breaking that cycle of negativity. Mm-hmm. It's that learning how to forgive myself for the things that I don't do very well. 
and celebrating the things that I do a little bit better. That's Mm. been the transformative experience for me more than any particular action. It's been changing my mental patterns around that. Right. But I think in a way, though, I think that is a, a, a beautiful response. I do think that's an action in a way because you need to decide to set yourself those reminders or to have a conversation with yourself when those negative yep. thoughts arise. Right? I think that's a beautiful way of, of approaching a situation because it is natural for those things to come back. If that's how we've been programmed growing up or what we just got used to over such a long period of time, it doesn't you know there's no uh it's very very rare that what happens in the movies happens in real life where suddenly i'm a totally different person now because of one event normally it's a lot of hard work consistently um or little bits of hard work consistently but i think that's a beautiful a beautiful way of looking at it now talking about contrast right and going back to this activity you told us about uh, a little bit earlier where being able to contrast uh, one thing you're attached to with the reality of, of who you are and how you feel about yourself. That was so clear. Let's talk about the contrast between some of the things you were feeling and experiencing that, that were negative during that process and the things you noticed in Nepal, right? And you mentioned this, and I think this all seems to tie back together really well. What were you noticing that you felt contrasted so much with what you were used to right so like the american way of life versus what you were seeing um on your journey uh into nepal etc what were those contrasts that you feel like spoke to you and i think this kind of gets into your book a little bit but how much does that did or did that end up affecting what you took away from the trip the biggest thing that I remind myself of all the time that, that I noticed while I was in Nepal. So, so let's, I guess let's start with the experience there. We'll start with the story and then we'll get to kind of what I learned. The, mm. the, the, the big contrast that I noticed was the, so you, you can't help be struck, but be struck, particularly when you're in the Kumbu Valley or some of these areas by the difference in material attainment right. between that area of the world and the West, mm. right? The, just the amount of stuff they have. And, and mm. by the way, like there is no road going to these villages. And so there's an airstrip in Lukla and then everything that goes up past Lukla is either hauled on yaks or literally carried by human beings. Right. Yeah. And so you, you just have so much less stuff. Like they're, 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 you know, you don't have TVs, like you, you sometimes have electricity and sometimes not, um, you know, you're, you're oftentimes either filtering the water or buy, buying bottled water. And, and there's so much less material attainment over there. Mm-hmm. And yet there was so much, and, and, and we think of that being the thing that we strive for, right? Particularly in, in Western culture, it's all about the material attainment. It's all about the acquisition of goods and all of that kind of stuff. And, and, and we think, I think in the West, there's this implicit notion that if we have the car or the handbag or the shoes or the ability to go to the nice restaurant, those are going to be the things that are going to make us happy. Yeah. And, and what I found in Nepal was people that had a fraction of the material attainment. Mm-hmm. And yet, from what I could tell, had far more serenity, far more compassion, far more, um, 
I'm going to call it wealth of spirit. Okay. Than, yeah. than much of what, what I see back home. And, it, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's a philosophical difference. I think it's a difference in, in um, you know, it's, it's a difference in religion. It's a difference in a lot of different things that, that lead to this. But what it reminded me of and, and what, what I remind myself of all the time is that happiness is, you know, our happiness, our joy is oftentimes, it, you can almost measure it as an equation. It's what is reality minus what are your expectations? expectations yeah, I love yep. that saying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I find myself all the time when I'm unhappy or I'm uncomfortable in, in a given situation, I, I find myself, you know, reminding myself that there's only so much that I can do to influence reality. Obviously, I, I have some ability to control my reality, but much of my reality is out of my control. Mm-hmm. The thing that I have perfect control over is my expectations. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and whenever I feel like what I have isn't enough or I need more, I try to transport myself back to the Kumbu Valley sort of mentally mm-hmm. and to think about the people over there and to think about how absurd uh, the keeping up with the Joneses mentality, you know, that, that can so <laughs> often become natural in, in Western thinking, how absurd that seems over there. Yeah. And, and just to remind myself that there is a very different way of life available to me if I can remind myself to put myself there mentally and mm-hmm. emotionally. Now you talk a bit about, I say a bit, it's a, a big chunk of, of, of your book from what I've, I've heard so far, uh, this concept of your Everest. Correct me if I'm wrong, um, as opposed to, you know, you you use your trip to Everest to talk about some really important concepts to mental health. Walk us through a little bit of, about what those concepts are, but then how it relates to this idea of you having your own Everest. Tell us, tell us a bit about what your Everest is or means, I should say. Yeah, you know, everybody has different goals in this world, right? And and those goals may be physical, those goals may be financial, those goals may be things that, that we want to achieve. We've got, oftentimes we've got stated goals, kind of explicit goals that we say that we want to go mm-hmm. do. And then we oftentimes have unspoken goals in our mind. We, we've got things that we want to accomplish, things that we think that if we can go do, it might make us feel whole, right? If, if we can make our body look a certain way, mm-hmm. or if we can achieve a certain amount of wealth, or if we can have a certain type of car, you know, these, these kinds of things might make us happy. And, and so really there's, there's kind of two fundamental threads that get woven throughout the book. The first one is to be intentional about what those goals are. Okay. To, to be intentional about what it is you want to achieve. What is it that you fear not achieving? Um, take some of those things that are unstated and make them stated so that they can then be examined, mm. whether that's journaling it, yeah. whether it's talking about it with, with friends, therapists, peers, mentors, what have you. Um, and, and, and so understanding and, and being intentional about what those goals and those aspirations are, figuring out what your Everest is, and it's probably going to change mm-hmm. over time. And there's probably going to be lots of different kind of ups and downs along that journey. But really understanding that's number one. And then number two, the other thread that that really, and, and I get much more specific in the book and we can get as specific as you want, Seven, mm. but, but the, at a high level, if I try and sum it all up, it's coming to an understanding okay. that 
there's nothing wrong with wanting to go and achieve greatly. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with having ambitious goals. In fact, I continue to have ambitious goals and I think they're fantastic. I love having ambitious mm -hmm. goals. There's, there's no balance needed in, in sort of like not having a goal. But where balance becomes so important is, is we can actually both have a better chance of achieving the goal that we want to go achieve and live a happier and more resilient mm -hmm. life by bringing balance into the equation. And so for overachievers like me, that naturally tend towards a go, 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 be on all the time, yeah. always do more faster kind of mentality. Uh, understanding that bringing balance into the equation and finding some really specific ways to do that, you know, number one, it, it can make you happier. It can make you more joyful. It can make you more peaceful. It can make, you know, our limited and sacred time on this planet much more enjoyable. Mm. But but then the other side of it is it can actually make you far more likely to achieve the thing that it is that you want to yeah. achieve. Uh, it can make you far more resilient to the challenges, yeah. far more, you know, far, far better able to make decisions and inspire others and things like that. And so really unlocking that paradox is, is what inspired me to want to write the book okay. and, and want to go tell the story. Now, let's break down those two things in turn. Yeah. Especially this, the the second thing that you just said. Yeah, that's what a lot of our our original conversation that we yep. that we had when we first met was around. So I'd love to talk about that. Yes. But before that, about setting goals, I think this is great for setting this context. Is without a goal, what is there to balance? Kind of that that becomes my question, right? It's it's very natural for us as human beings to to strive towards something and i think it's very easy in the modern day for us to not know what that is towards and it's not just about the, the daily goals the daily milestones are important but back when i was um when i first started my career i was actually a youth worker and what we would do with the young people we were working with or one of the many activities yep. we would do is we would set what are called big hairy audacious goals <laughs> and we would describe it almost yep. like it's a little bit like a, a monster under the bed right it's this big ugly hairy thing and really what that just comes down to is you have something that you're probably striving towards that you haven't written down but you just you yep. kind of want to have right i want to have a house in the hills or i want to climb mount everest that's a really good example actually and it's this thing that you said you want to do but because it's so big, so scary, so audacious, you haven't put enough into action to do it. And, and that's kind of the, the premise there. What would you say around having those goals and setting those goals, right? Like it's natural to, to think about them, but why do, we, why do we set them? Why should we set them? What should we be looking for? And why should we strive towards them? Yeah, I, I think... Goals are a great thing to have, so long as we recognize that the journey to get to the goal is actually going to be mm. the, the, the thing that's going to make more of an impact on us, most likely, mm. than the achievement of the goal itself. But right. the, other, the other thing that I think is important that so often doesn't happen is the um, interrogating those goals and understanding why they're important and, and why they're critical. So if I set a goal that I want to be a millionaire, okay, right. great. So what's going to happen when you're, it, it kind of goes back to your question, um, Seven. So what are you going to do about it? So, so how are you going to get there? Mm. But then what do you expect to happen? Like, what do you expect to find when that, 
when that you know dollar value clicks over in your bank account, clicks over from nine 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 to you know a million dollars. Do you expect to yeah. feel different? Do you expect to be different? Do you expect people to look at you differently? And what we oftentimes find is that that goal that we set for ourselves is really a proxy. It's like a placeholder for a bunch of other things that we want that we're not able to, to articulate. So, you know, mm-hmm. do I want to be a millionaire because I want to have financial, because I want to have stability and, and I want my family mm-hmm. to not be worried about being mm-hmm. on the street? Do I want to be a millionaire because I want people to look at me like I'm a big shot? Do I want to be a millionaire because I want to have resources to give to the less fortunate? Do I want to have, so, so oftentimes there's something in our ego, there's something in our id, there's something that we're trying to satisfy yeah. by that goal. And, and, and this is where then when you achieve the goal, you oftentimes realize that you haven't actually achieved, and this is why it can feel so hollow, you haven't necessarily mm-hmm. achieved that thing in the id, that thing in the ego. You know, it, it goes mm-hmm. back to me climbing the mountain, you know, part of why, uh, you know, I, I, the, 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 the cliche answer to why climb a mountain like this is the, you know, what, what um, Mallory said of because it's there. But the reality is that like when you get to the top of the mountain, you expect to to, I, I think there's some expectation you'll feel different. People will look at you differently. Um, you know, mm. there, there's, there's just something different about it. And mm. uh, again, what, what I found was it was those second order goals. It was that kind of getting past that ego part of it. That mm. was really the, the important part of climbing. Um, yeah. and, and it really becomes the important part of the goal setting, the goal realization, the goal attainment, that whole cycle. Yeah. So maybe it's a little bit about, um, have the goal, this big, hairy, audacious goal, right? Have this really, really ambitious, huge goal. Have your own Everest, but make sure it's the journey. That the reason you have it is because of this this journey and because when you get it, you know what you're expecting to happen, right? As opposed yep. to as opposed to blindly setting some really ambitious goal that you, you just, you have this attachment to for no good reason. <laughs> I think- That's exactly I, I think that that makes perfect sense to me. And it starts to speak to that second element, right? Which yeah. is something something you've actually mentioned a lot throughout already is kind of this concept of balance, right? We, I, I think we take the word balance for granted over here in the West, right? We kind of, we say, let's have yeah. a balance. In fact, a really common saying is work-life balance which I've I've been disputing for years because you're not you're not living a different <laughs> life when you go totally. to work. It's still all of it's life, right? Everything everything just is life. So we kind of say, "Oh yeah, we need this balance. I need to not and it's almost always work related too. I need to not be spending X amount of time working." Actually, I think balance goes much much deeper than that. And like you mentioned, the reality is by having a great balance um, to life overall, all of the elements that are within your life that make up your life, you end up actually achieving more. You're more likely to climb your Everest. You're more likely to achieve uh, your your big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, And I'd love for us to talk a little bit about what that means and why that's the case, right? So when we talk about balance, what what is the first thing that comes to your mind right like what do you mean when you say let's find a balance let's achieve a balance yeah so as as a chronic overachiever 
and mm. type A type of person. <laughs> For mm. me, the hard part of balance that I had to learn was stillness, quiet, contemplation, reflection, peace. The, you know, what, what the Buddhists would call the yin to complement the yang. And right. for much of my life, I was completely yang focused. Do, do, do. There was okay. no quiet. There was no stillness around it. And this lesson for me really got driven home. And this is the, the big part of why I use so much of the mountaineering metaphor uh, in the book. It's, it's why the book became Scale Your Everest, you know, for a book that's not really about mountaineering at all. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. and yeah. what I found while I was there, number one, when I showed up, I was less prepared than many of the people um, that, that I was climbing with. Right. Other people there with me had far stronger climbing resumes. They had, um, they, they, they were, you know, in better shape than I was. If, if you were to look at them and look at me on day one, you would have put their, your money on them. I certainly would have. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. The, and, and, and yet I accomplished it where many people did not. Right. And that's, that's mm. not a statement of ego. That's, that's just the fact of what happened. Um, yeah. And the other thing that struck me, and, and this is related to that first point was that my guides were constantly telling me to do less. When I got there, I wanted to climb harder. I, I wanted to do more prep. I wanted to, you know, be going, um, I, I wanted to be doing practice mm. climbs all the time. I wanted to be doing more day hikes. I wanted to be mm. doing, 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 doing. And my guides kept telling me, stop, go take a rest day, relax, recover, let your body heal, mm -hmm. all of this other kind of stuff. And these, these were things that did not come naturally to me. I had been training so hard. I had, I was so ready to go after it. I was so ready to go up, 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 up. And my guides kept telling me, mm. slow down, stop, rest, relax. And it was the hardest yeah. thing for me to do. It really was. And, and, and they were, they would roll their eyes. They would yell at me, you know, they, they, mm -hmm. they used every trick in their book to cause me to calm down and, and to, to spend more time, energy and focus on rest and recovery. And, um, <laughs> and thank God they did it. Because there were the points in the climb when I needed every mm -hmm. bit of strength that I had, when I almost couldn't get to where I needed to go. And, you know, and it, had I burned up all of my energy earlier the way that mm -hmm. I wanted to, naively, um, had I burned up all of that energy earlier, I never would have had what, I, what it took to accomplish the goal you know, when I needed every bit of energy and strength. And, and so that's why when I talk about balance, when I talk about that balance actually being important to the achievement, um, you know, there, there's these same lessons hold, whether it's making decisions under duress, whether it's processing information when we're under, when we're under stress, um, there's all kinds of research out there that these same concepts hold across disciplines and, and across, right. you know, methods of execution. But, but the lesson that I took away from it was that achieve, learning to achieve the balance, the quiet, the stillness, the rest, the, the learning to develop the ability to rest and recover was the thing that was absolutely critical to mm. then accomplishing the goal of climbing. Yeah. So there's almost this idea that you can do less and do more in a way, right? A hundred percent. I, I, learning, you know, um, 
learning how to strip away mm. the things that aren't important that we might think are important that might occupy a certain place in our mind, but learning how to strip mm -hmm. those things away so that we can truly focus and we can truly prioritize that, which is absolutely critical and then do, and then do a much better job on the critical high priority things that I think is such an important mm. lesson mm. to learn. What strikes me is that we don't often place that weight on those places, right? We put all of our weight because of that attachment we've talked about throughout. We put so much weight on the achievement that we put no weight on the balance, which means that we lose the ability to have the achievement and it just becomes this downwards cycle. Whereas actually having, you use the perfect words there, a peace joy, freedom, lightness. I mean, all of those words used to describe stillness is one of my favorite words ever. These, um, they seem like they're taking us further away from that achievement, that big, hairy, audacious goal, but actually they bring us more in tune with our ability to Absolutely. constructively make it happen, right? So we're both, we're both happier and more productive. And I think as a message to pass on to leaders that, that is key. Absolutely. That is a huge takeaway, right? I, I could not think of a better way to end this conversation than on exactly All that right. point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Well, that this pretty much wraps us up. I mean, I feel like we could talk about this forever, but I guess um the that that is I think the perfect way to 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 put the bow the bow on the present, if you will. I guess for the sake of it, one final question I love to ask is if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would that be? I love the question. It's funny because I kind of wrote a whole book to my younger self, right? Trying to, trying to give younger Eric advice. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to distill it. It, yeah. would, it would go back to exactly that point. What I, would, what I would tell younger Eric is I would say, look, you've got the ambition. You've got the drive. You're, you're a smart guy who's going to work hard. There's lots yeah. of people that tell you that ambition and drive are, are critical to success. And they are, they're important. There's, there's nothing wrong with those things. It's the other part of you that doesn't come as naturally that you're going to have to put more work and intention into developing. And mm. whether that's things like stillness, whether it's kindness, whether it's compassion for others, as well as yourself, um, some of those other parts of your being that, mm -hmm that don't come quite as naturally, but are even more important. And, and because of that are even more important to focus on developing and growing. So, so, mm. so reading about those things, learning about those things, studying those things um, is going to be absolutely critical in the future. And that's, mm. that's the thing that I don't know how much 25 year old Eric would have believed me if I went back and said it, but it's the <laughs> thing that I would have tried yeah. very, very hard to figure out how to get across. Yeah. I mean, that puts a huge smile on my face and I think is a, a beautiful message to end off with. Eric, where can people learn more about you, find your book, etc., all that stuff? Yep. So if you look up my last name, Severing House, if you go to severinghouse.com, you can see some of the stuff that I write and links to some columns that, that I write for Inc. Magazine and other places. 
Uh, the book is will be available by the time this podcast is released, I believe. So you can get the book uh, Scale Your Everest is available at Amazon, at Barnes and Noble, at hopefully bookstores near you when we're all physically going back to bookstores again. Yeah. Um, and uh, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me, um, you know, generally available on the Perfect. Internet. Yeah. Yeah, I'll put all those those little links down below in the description. Um, that sounds great. I'll be looking out. I'm definitely, definitely uh, need to finish your book. But Eric, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This has been an amazing episode and I hope you have a good one. It's my pleasure. Thanks again, Seven. Take care. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. Sharing our stories like this, especially around the beginning of the episode and some of the things we shared around what we've experienced, that kind of thing can be difficult. And today's episode, especially the kinds of things that we experience on our journeys can be difficult for all of us to try to overcome. But we just find it so important for leaders, especially young leaders, to know that they are not alone, for you to know that you are not alone in experiencing mental health challenges. A final reminder before we close that across this season, I am running a giveaway. All you need to do is fill out a really quick survey. It helps me out a lot. And if you can, I'd love for you to also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This kind of thing really helps us spread this message further and just impact more people and reach more amazing guests and just make this bigger and better. So thank you so much. It genuinely does mean a lot to me. I've been Seven. This has been Lost and Searching, and we will be back very soon.